0: First of all, we're super excited about that opportunity. And we kind of promoted it last week, and uh, Jimmy T did a great job. So we do. We want to build a body of disciples here at Calvary who reach and impact other people with God's love and truth. And so this is an easy way to show God's love to other people. So we encourage uh, all of you to participate in it. And I think if ministry doesn't work out for Jim Taylor, I mean, he's got some TV infomercial gifting in him, right? <laughs> <clears throat> I'm about to give him $19.99, but wait, there's more. I mean, that was spectacular. So we're excited about that, and uh, we're taking a break. If you're whether you're visiting or regular tender or not, we've been going through a series in Revelation, and uh, we're excited about that. And we're taking a break for uh, three Sundays leading up to Easter, and then after Easter, we're going to resume back into it. And in the piece that we'll be moving into, it's uh, man, we're going to be talking about. The Antichrist, 666, all, you know, continuing to think about all the things that are out there in popular culture or about revelation. We're going to be pressing into from a theological perspective and practical perspective. And so uh, if you've been with us, that's when we're jumping back to it. And if you're looking for a church, what we do normally, except for what we're about to do today, is we open up a part of the Bible, usually a book of the Bible, and we work through it Chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and we think about how that applies to our lives today. So, uh, I'm excited about what God has for us, and we're going to pray, and then we're going to jump into it. Father, we're grateful uh, for the opportunity to <clears throat> impact other people in your name for Jesus with love, and so we pray that as we do this outreach uh, opportunity, that you will move our hearts to participate, and that there will be fruit that comes from that, and that we will be a sweet aroma for you in this community. And we're thankful this morning, Father, for what we've already sung and affirmed about Jesus. And as we move into this Easter season, Father, we want to celebrate and honor and remember Jesus well. And so we're grateful that the Spirit will help us do that. And as we move into what you have for us this morning, Father, may we learn, but also may we think about how this impacts us today. And uh, as always, God, I trust the Holy Spirit to help us and to have truth and to do it in a way that brings glory to Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, Have you ever been on social media? Anybody here ever been on social media? Man, if there's that one person who's been like a monk for the past 60 years and never been on it, you are the best person, right? But probably most of us, in some degree or another, we've been on social media. And uh, what tends to happen on social media, especially, you know, most of us get on it on our phone, whether it's Instagram, Snapchat, TikTok, right? Facebook, whatever it is, um, what we typically do is we do the scroll, right? We do the scroll. You get your phone it's 10.30 at night, you can't go to sleep, you do what all the experts tell you not to do, and you get your phone, and then you just scroll. I mean, you just scroll, and you fly through all sorts of different things on social media um, and absorb it. And the interesting thing about social media when you scroll, man, you get snapshots of different things, but they're all disconnected, right? You'll be looking at something and it'll be a picture of somebody's grandma making spaghetti. And then you'll scroll, and it will be somebody's birthday party. And then you scroll, and there's somebody in Hawaii showing you a picture of their feet on the beach chair. Don't do those pictures. (laughs) This is a word from the Lord. I'm just telling you, and I don't care if you email me. Ain't nobody wants to see your feet on a beach chair, all right? I'm just take that with it. We scroll, we see something about grandma, we see a birthday party, we see somebody's feet on a beach chair, we see this random ad to buy this dress that we've never want to wear, and we just scroll and all of it seems disconnected. And we can absorb each little post, but all the posts in a line don't seem to have a common thread. And I think sometimes for many of us and myself until I went to seminary, man, I would come to this book And it would kind of just be a scroll, right? I would just kind of go through story after story, and I would understand each story. But what I wouldn't always understand is, man, is there a common theme between all of those stories? How do all those stories fit together? And in a few weeks, what we're going to be celebrating together is Easter, right? Easter. And I already can know I have bad handwriting, and so you don't have to email me about that. And I think for some of us, as we scroll through the Bible, we we come to Easter, and we can understand Easter, we get the story, we might, but, but we wonder, like, is that connected to anything else? Is there any other context between that, or is it just this standalone story that has nothing to do with anything? Well, the reality is Easter and the story of Easter, and throughout today I'm going to use the word story, and I don't mean that as fictional, I mean it's actually a historical story, so when I say story, I mean true thing. The reality is that the story of Easter is not a standalone, one-off thing. The story of Easter is deeply connected to everything that's come before it, and it has so much to do with everything that will come after it. And if we can understand everything that's come before Easter, then we're going to have a better context to understand Easter itself. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to spend our time together and we're going to think about man, what is all the stuff that came before Easter? Right? What's the context of Easter? What, is it just dropped in the middle of the Bible or why is it there? And if you've ever wondered whether you're a Christian or not Christian, like what's all the stuff in the Old Testament about? Does all the stuff in the Old Testament have any relevance to us in the New Testament? I remember. Uh, Throughout my amazing 51 years of life, I've heard uh, at least two people say this comment to me, well, I don't have to read anything in the Old Testament because I'm a Christian. And so anything that happened in the Old Testament doesn't really apply to me. Well, the reality is we won't fully understand the New Testament until we understand the Old Testament. And you and I in a few weeks will more fully understand Easter when we understand all of the things that came before Easter. And so today, in our time together, we're going to think about that. We're going to think about what's the stories leading up to the stories? How are they connected? How is it not just a random one-off scroll event? And so, in order to understand the Easter story, we start where every story starts. And every, where does every good story start? Oh my God, have you been watching me prep for this sermon, right? The story begins in the beginning, right? And in the beginning... What we see in the story is in Genesis 1.1, and it's going to pop up and down between the screen. But in the beginning of the story, what we see is that God created the heavens and the earth. God, a God who is transcendent, a God who is outside of everything, that God drew near into our reality, and he actually began our reality by creating. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created the heavens and the earth for two reasons. He created it for his glory to be like, man. I want to show people what I'm like. I want to show people who I am. I want to receive glory. And he also created it for his love, an overflow of his love, so to have people to pour into. And as he began creating, one of the things that he created were humans. He created male. And female, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the text tells us that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. Now, it's really interesting that idea of image of God, right? There's two things that are meant by the image of God. One is when in the beginning, God created and he created people, he created them in his image, and part of what that means is that he created them with characteristics that reflected him. Every single person in this room, whether you believe in God, whether you believe in Jesus, whether you believe in the Bible, you have things hardwired into you that reflect the God who created you. You have values, you have things about the way you interact with the people, the need for community that reflects the God who created you. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that you're made in a way that reflects who God is. But there's another uh, reality of what it means to be made in the image of God, and it kind of has to do with street signs in the town of Trumbull, street signs in the town of Trumbull. Have you ever driven around different parts of Trumbull? Good. When you drive around different parts of Trumbull, as you start to get to borders of other towns, you see this, like the amazing town of Monroe, Monroe. Or the amazing town of Shelton, you see, or the amazing town of Bridgeport, you see these nice, lovely New England like signs, kind of hidden behind bushes that are really overgrown. And it says, Welcome to the town of Trumbull. And then there's a the first selectman's name on that, right? Welcome to the town of Trumbull. And throughout different places on the borders of Trumbull, there are these signs to kind of show you how far the uh, governance how far the authority of Trumbull extends and in many ways right that that's kind of what God did in making things in his image because in this culture the emperors of that culture wouldn't leave street signs what the emperors of that culture would do is they would make little images of themselves and they would take those images and they would put those images of themselves at different boundaries of their empire and then at different boundaries of the empire, there would be those images. And so what the emperor would be saying is, my authority, my reign, it extends even this far. My authority and my reign even extends this far. I have control over all of this. And in many ways, when God made people in his image, it was to reflect him. But God also said, hey, I'm putting people here on this world that I created to say that this is part of my kingdom. This belongs to me. This is under my control. And when he put these people on the earth, man, it was an amazing reality for those people. The place that he made them was great. There was God. There was them. There was connection. There was relationship. There was Partnership. There was peace. There was fellowship, right? This place that he made, it had harmony. It had all sorts of good things about it. And in that place, there was all sorts of freedoms for them to do all sorts of things that they wanted to do, right? And, and you, we see this verse that talks about, right, the Lord God commanded man and said, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden. There's all sorts of things that these people can do in the world that he created, But there was one thing that he said not to do. And the one thing that he said not to do was, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created people, and he put those people on the earth. And in this environment, it was a place of beauty and rest and peace and harmony and purpose intimacy and fellowship with other people and intimacy and fellowship with God. And there was all sorts of things they could do except for one thing. One thing that God says, hey, it will not be good for you to do that thing. But in many ways, they were like little kids who are with other kids who are playing with toys. For those of us who have children, right? Here's the reality that happened in my house and probably in your house. You could have a kid who has like 72,000 toys they're playing with. They have Xboxes. They have Legos. They have four-wheel drive Jeep. They have all sorts of toys they're playing with, right? 72,000 toys they actually have. But their sibling has one little toy over there in the corner, and what does that child do? Here's what that child does. That child says, well, I don't want all these 72,000 toys. What I want is that one toy that I can't have, right? I have all of these to play with, but that's not sufficient for me. That's not satisfying enough for me. What I want is this one toy that I can't have. What God told all those, these people in that day is, man, there is so much freedom for you. There's so much enjoyment for you in the world that I created. There's one thing that is not good for you to do, though, and I don't want you to do that. And the question that was in front of these people was this question, do I trust God? Do I trust God? Do I think that God knows what he's doing? Do I think that the boundaries God's put in front of me are the right ones? Am I willing to trust God? what he tells me to do, and what he tells me not to do. And this morning, some of you didn't necessarily need to come to see me scribble all over a dry erase board. What you are coming in this room with is this very question this morning. Do I trust God? Do you trust God? Because maybe in your story there's something you're wrestling with and you don't know the next step. Or maybe there's something that God says, hey, I want you to trust me in this. Here's the 72,000 things I want you to do, and I don't want you to do this. And you're caught at this crossroads because this is kind of where you want to be. Whether that's a relationship, whether it's a job, whether it's a financial situation, whatever it is, whether it's something sexually, this is where you want to be. But God's like, no, this is where you should be. And and you're sitting here this morning, a couple weeks before Easter, asking yourself, do I trust God? Well, those people in that story, they believed a lie. They believed a lie that keeps me from trusting God. They believed a lie that keeps you from trusting God. And the lie they believed was this, that God was holding out on them, that God wasn't for them. That God was keeping something really, really good from them. And if they do what God tells them not to do, there's actually going to be an upside to that. That's the lie that every single one of us face when we're faced with the question of do we trust God. Because the lie that we hear many times in our ears is this lie, God's not for you. God doesn't want what's best for you. God's trying to keep something from you. And this thing over here that isn't God, that's actually going to work out better for you. That's going to make you more content. That's going to make you more satisfied. That's going to make life easier. That thing over here is going to give you what you really want, and there is an upside to disobeying God and going for it. And they bought that lie. They bought that lie that there was an upside to God, and in that moment, everything changed. Everything changed. A couple months ago, we all saw in the news as we were scrolling through social media or whatever news platform you look at about the train that derailed in Ohio. And it was a train that derailed in Ohio with some hazardous materials, with some chemicals, and when it derailed, in that moment everything changed. And we didn't know that everything changed at first because at first it just seemed like a train derailed. But what started happening in the days and the weeks after those chemical fumes had escaped, what happened in the days and the weeks after those chemical fumes escaped into the air was that animals started dying. And fish started dying. Right? Living things started to die. Living things were impacted because in that moment that that thing happened, everything changed. And in this moment, When these people decided there was an upside to disobeying God and that they didn't trust God, everything changed. Because people who were in a relationship with God fell out of that relationship. And theologians will refer to this as the fall. And you can read about it later today in Genesis chapter 3. And people who were in a relationship with God, communing with God, fellowship with God because of their own choice fell out of that relationship with God and then were far away from God. And this chasm, this gap, man, there was nothing on their own that they could do to overcome it. They fell because they disobeyed. Because they thought that there was an upside to disobeying God. In this place, there's all sorts of consequences that flow from that. All sorts of consequences flow from that. And you can read it in Genesis 3 as you're getting ready in the coming days to watch UConn win the national championship in basketball. And one of the things you'll read, though, man, if you want to understand why tragedies happen in this world, why earthquakes, why everything, it all has to do with a choice that God wasn't for them. But in this place, there was a glimmer of hope. Because as God is putting a condemnation and a consequence on the enemy who deceived them, God says this word to the deceiver and to the enemy. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, Satan. There's going to be somebody that comes from these people, right? And, and somebody who comes from this person, there's going to be tension and there's going, to be, there's going to be conflict. But let me tell you what's going to happen. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, in this moment, when everything's changed and everything's falling apart, what God is saying to the enemy is, "Hey, you may think you've won, but one day, someday, there's going to be somebody who comes who's descended from these people, and you're going to get, you're going to stick it to him a little bit, but man, he's going to crush you. He's going to crush you, one day, someday." That didn't happen right away, because what happened right away was what happens when you and I sin. At some point, the ripples of that, the consequences of that, start to move beyond us. And in this moment, in this place, if you start reading Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, what you see is the ripples of this sin, it starts going out. And interestingly, the first place that it goes when these people made a choice to sin, you know the very first place it impacts? Their family. Their family. The very first people who are impacted by the consequences of these people's decision not to obey God were their kids. And parents, for you and for me, things haven't changed that much in thousands and thousands of years because the reality of sin still works the same way, and parents... Do you know the first people who are often victims of our choices to sin? It's other people who are closest to us. Typically, other people in our family. And some of your family members, our family members, may be facing the shrapnel this morning of decisions that we've made. And if they're not, then this should sober us as parents. Hey, we need to be careful. Because it's just not our lives that we can impact, it's the lives of people around them. The lives of people around Adam and Eve were impacted in terrible, terrible ways. That started to spread beyond families, it spread to people groups, it started to spread to countries, and it was a mess. It was broken. It was broken. And God let the brokenness continue and go for a little bit of time, but then one day he looked down and he said, you know what, it's enough. I'm going to start to work to fix it. I'm going to start to work to start this process to make things like they were intended to be and actually to make things better than they were intended to be. And God kind of decided to fix it the way that Craig, my plumber, helped fix something in my house uh, a couple weeks ago. When we renovated our house... Um, we, you know, everything was old, and so we decided, however many years ago, that we were going to put in one of these little water boiler heater things that fits on your wall and, I don't know, looks like a picture frame, right? Uh, and it was great, until it wasn't. And it's super high tech, but the challenge to super high tech things are you can't just hit it with a wrench or throw a match into the pilot light to get it going again. And somehow that thing being so high tech knows the coldest days of the year. I promise you, it has some thermometer in there, and somehow there is chaos in my house, and that thing's like, oh, record lows, I'm going to take a nap and not work anymore. So, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it, it got cold again, right, for a day or so. That's right when my little thing went, wouldn't work. I tried everything I knew in the book, unplugged it, da-da-da. So, we called Craig the plumber. Craig the plumber is quickly becoming my favorite person in the universe. Craig the plumber comes over, he looks at all this fancy stuff, he's like, oh, you don't want your plumber to say this. This is almost a direct quote, but I'm I'm sensitizing it for church audience, right? He says, man, I'm like, dude, is it okay? He's like, dude, stinks to be you. (laughs) Such an encouragement, Craig the plumber. So he's looking at this thing and nothing's working the way it should. It's broken and it needs to be fixed. And so you know what he did? He started at one place of that thing that was broken. He said, this is where I'm going to start. I'm going to start right here. And from right here, I'm going to move on and then work to fix everything else. He picked one spot. And God, when he looked down at this mess, what God did is he picked one spot as well. And the spot he picked, the way he started trying to fix things was a person named Abraham. Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, God starts to lay out his blueprint to fix this to bring it back to this. Right? He shows us the game plan. And he makes promises to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, listen. And Abraham didn't fully comprehend this at the time, but God said to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to make you three promises. I'm going to give you people. Some of you are going to think I write in Hebrew. I mean, it's it's an ancient hieroglyphic language that I've developed. I'm going to give you people, land, and blessing. Right? Abraham, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you some people. And to those people, one day I'm going to give them some land. And then when the people get in that land, I'm going to bless them. But Abraham, listen, it's not just all about them. What we'll find out later is I'm actually going to use them to try to bless all other people around them. What God is whispering in this moment is, hey, I promised back here that one day a child was going to come who was going to crush the enemy. And Abraham, one day, someday, I'm going to give you people. I'm going to give those people land. I'm going to give blessing to those people and blessing to all people. And what God is whispering and hinting at is this isn't just a standalone social media story to scroll on. Because one day, somebody's going to come, and that person is going to come from a related to you, Abraham, and he's going to come to the from the land that I give to you, Abraham. And that person is going to offer blessing not just to your people, but to all people. Because my plan is to fix everything. Now, Abraham, in that moment when God made those promises, old boy was loaded. Old boy had some cashieroo. He made Jeff Bezos' little yacht look like a skiff in a pond. I know Jeff Bezos wasn't alive in the age of Abraham. He looks like he's old enough to be, but he's not. right? But Abraham had this question that he had to answer abraham's question was do i trust god do i trust god because god said abraham i'm gonna give you all these things but abraham you need to step out in faith and you need to leave everything that's given you comfort and you need to follow me and by the way i'm not going to tell you where i'm taking you how many times does god do that How many times does God have us settled in some place, whatever that place may be? And he starts to stir, and he starts to tug. And and, and I love the phrase that I've heard before, this this holy unrest. And he comes to us and says, hey, I've got something else for you, or for you. And you're like, okay. And he says, but the question that you're going to have to answer is, do I trust God? Because God says to you, look, here's the first step I want you to take. Well, that's great. What then? And God says, hey, take the step and find out. God does that a lot. I hate that. I when I turn on my ways to go to LaGuardia, I could go to LaGuardia Airport with my eyes closed, blindfolded, like a Jedi warrior in a in a fighter jet blowing up a thing. Right? I just use the Force. I just close my eyes and my fore-under and I get to LaGuardia Airport. But I know how to do it backwards, forwards, in my sleep, and I hate doing it. But yet, every time I start to go to LaGuardia Airport, you know what I do? I put in my ways. Just because I want to make sure that I know every step it's going to take me in case there's traffic and I have to go another step. I like to know every step along the way. But many times in my life God's come to me and maybe this morning God's coming to you and says, Hey, there's a little unrest I'm stirring in you because i got something else in your story to do in you and through you and with you. And so I want you to step out in faith to what I've revealed to you. And you're like, great, God, I'll take the first step. But can you show me the rest of the ways, directions? Like, when do I turn right? Where do I go? What? And he's like, tell you what, bro. And broette, I'm so inclusive. Just, just take the step. Just get out of your driveway. And then as you obey me, I'll show you what's next. Abraham had to wrestle with that. And he decided that he was going to take the step. And so he took a step of faith, and God is a God who unconditionally honored his promises to Abraham, even when Abraham didn't do things that are so faithful. And so over time, man, there started to be all sorts of people, 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 relatives of Abraham, relatives of Abraham, all over the place. And these people, these relatives of Abrahams are the, the Jewish people, ultimately, that we know today. And these Jewish people, these relatives of Abraham, at the time, they had gotten over to Egypt, and they start to continue to multiply and multiply, and the Egyptians freaked out, and so the Egyptians made them slaves, and God used different plagues to try to rescue the people. Interestingly, a lot of those plagues correspond to what we've been studying in Revelation. And then God finally starts to say, okay, I've honored my first promise to you people. You people are enslaved. I'm going to get you out of slavery, and I'm going to start to get you to the land that I promised you. And so they start this journey to the land that God had promised them. And along the way, God gives something to them called the law. The law. Maybe you're not a Christian person. Maybe you're not a church person. But maybe you've heard of the Ten Commandments, right? In every good southern grandma's house in Greenville, South Carolina, somewhere cross-stitched right by the It's always in the kitchen, I don't know why it's always in the kitchen. I don't, is there like a commandment about gluttony or eating a lot of like chicken and dumplings? I don't know. But there's the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were part of the law. But the Ten Commandments weren't the only part of the law. The law was given to these people. And the reason for this law was essentially to say, look, as you move into the land, as you're with me, if you do these things... This is what will cause you to experience blessing. But if you choose not to do these things, you will not experience the blessing that I have for you. right? If you do these things, this is the blueprint for you to experience the blessing that I want to give you in the land. And as you Jewish people are blessed in the land, other countries are going to look and say, man, what do those guys have going on? And they're going to be drawn to me. The Ten Commandments are part of this. Here's what's really, really interesting. These rules, and this is really important for some of us, were given to a people who were already in a relationship with God. These people were already in a relationship. These were not given to tell them how to get into a relationship. These were given to tell them how to live in that relationship. And when they messed up in that relationship, there were laws about sacrifices, sacrifices. Because in that moment when the people sinned and didn't do something right, the, the reality was that something had to pay. Something had to pay. When these people didn't do what they were supposed to do and they, they were out of a relationship with God, in that moment somebody had to pay for the, something had to pay for the bad choices they made. And so there were these laws about sacrifices And lambs, that an innocent lamb would have to be killed. A a, a creature that didn't do anything wrong would have to be killed as a substitute for the person who did do something wrong. Because when there's sin and when there's wrong and when there's separation, somebody, something, has to pay for that. The issue isn't whether something has to pay for the wrong. The issue is what's going to pay for the wrong. Who's going to pay for the wrong? There's also this really interesting thing in Leviticus 16, known as the scapegoat. You ever heard of the scapegoat? You hear a lot in politics, right? Ah, he was just the scapegoat. Um, That phrase, golly, that looks like scapegoat. Scapegoat. That phrase comes from Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16, there's going to be a lot of it on the screen, but you can read it later. On a special day, according to the law, in the Jewish feast, it was called the Day of Atonement. And the high priest on this special day would do two things. He would take two different goats, and there would be a way to choose which goat. And one goat he would ceremoniously kill as a substitute and he would affirm and tell the people, hey, what was in the water of that act was, hey, you guys have all sinned. We've all sinned. And when there's sin, something has to pay. And so this goat is going to be, first goat is going to be a substitute that's going to pay so that you don't have to. But then there was a second goat. And the second goat was the goat that was known as the scapegoat. And this second goat, the priest would take this goat outside of the limits of the camp. And outside of the limits of the camp, as you read in Leviticus 16, the high priest would symbolically put his hand on that goat. And the text tells us that the goat shall bear all of their iniquities on itself in a remote area. The scapegoat. Bear iniquities and then they would take that goat that had that that goat would be outside of the camp outside of the limits and it would be symbolically all the sins of the people would be put in that goat and then the goat would be left to go away And the symbolism would be that, hey, this was the substitute that was punished because when sin happens, something has to pay the price. This goat paid the price. And this other goat shows that when that price was paid, man, this goat is taking everything wrong that you've ever done. And he is taking it on himself and he is being released to carry that away from you so that you don't have to carry it any longer. A scapegoat. People eventually get into the land, and the land is the land of Israel, modern day today. And in the land, there's good and there's bad, and they mess up here, and so, man, they just wander around for a few years because they're like me, and they're stubborn, and it takes them a long time to learn to trust God. They get into the land. And there's these things they should be doing to honor God and to bless God. And when they're in the land, the question is that they are still faced with is, Do I trust God? Do I trust God? Am I going to live in this place in the way that he commanded me to? And the reality is that they didn't. Because like we talked about a couple weeks ago, their problem then is our problem today, that their problem were idols. And they thought that there was something better than obeying God and there was an upside to disobeying him. And so when faced with the question of would I trust God, they said, nope, nope. God, through this whole process, is still committed to getting us better than here. God is still committed to getting us better than here, and He said, one day somebody's going to come who's going get, to get, going to have some bad stuff happen, but man, He's going to destroy the enemy. That person is going to be related to Abraham and, and come from the nation of Israel, come from the land of Israel. That person is going to offer blessing to all people. And then as they moved into land, there's another thing that was revealed, and that thing is, hey, that person's going to be a king. 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes promises to King David, the guy who's ruling and says, David, let me tell you something. There's going to be somebody who comes from you one day, who's an heir of you, who's related to you, who, man, he's going to set up a kingdom, and it's going to be amazing. It's going to be everything you've wanted and everything you've longed for. It's going to be a king, a king. And then over time, there were these prophets that started to come when the people would mess up. And the prophets would say, hey, guys, look, you've got to stop sinning. If you don't stop sinning, then there's going to be consequences. Here are going to be the consequences that come. But one day, someday, after those consequences, there's going to be something great. And by the way, what's going to help get you to something great is going to be this king. And more and more prophecies were revealed about the king. There was a title that was started to be given to him called Messiah. Right? Another one of the prophecies is that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. That says Bethlehem. Just <laughs> Trust me. But another prophecy, this is really interesting. Another prophecy was that he's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. Another prophecy about this king, right? The Old Testament, these prophets to the people in the land kept talking about this king and talking about this king and talking about this king. Another prophecy about this king was that he was actually going to be sold out for 30 pieces of silver. Prophecy after prophecy after prophecy was made about these kings. There was a prophecy that he was going to be lifted up. And and, and the reality was, for the people at that time whose lives weren't the way that it wanted to be, there was this hope that the king is coming. The king is coming. With every king that was then coronated, with every king that was then born, the question for those people in that day was this is this the one? Is this the one? Years and years went by with the hope of the people saying the king is coming the king is coming to people whose lives weren't the way it should be. The king is coming. The king is coming. And it was a long, long wait. And then One day, in a little, tiny, no-name, redneck town of Bethlehem, there was a baby who was born. And if you did did a little Ancestry.com on that baby, what you would find out is that baby was related to Abraham. And that baby was related to David. And that baby ultimately goes all the way back to Eve. And as more and more was said about that baby, what, there, was this, there was this word told to its mom that, hey, Mary, your baby, this baby, he's the king that everybody has been waiting for. The king has come. He got older and what we're going to start looking at in next week and as we think about Easter, the story is he got older and he started talking about himself being a king and him having a kingdom, a kingdom that is everything you would ever want it to be. Whatever you have most deeply longed for, Whatever you sometimes, when things seem to be falling apart, that you know in your heart this isn't the way they're supposed to be, and in those moments, it's like this little glimmer of light when the clouds pass after a storm, and for a moment, the clouds pass, and you see some blue sky and something beyond there, and you know that there's something better than the gray, and in those moments in your own heart that you're like, this is not what I ultimately feel like I was made for. I feel like there was something better and more significant. I feel like I want this, where there's goodness and peace and no hostility and meaningful intimacy with other people and closeness and fellowship with God. Right? That's what I long for. This king started to say, hey, I'm the one that's going to give that to you. And then one day, he rode into town on a donkey, He was subsequently betrayed by a buddy for 30 pieces of silver. He was arrested. And as we'll celebrate on Good Friday, he was murdered. He was murdered. And he was taken away from his place of execution. He was put into a tomb. And it sure seemed like he'd been wrong. It sure seemed like he was a failed, unsuccessful king. And for three days, the questions that were swirling among the people in the city who thought he was a joke, his followers who thought he was true, was, man, maybe he wasn't everything he was cracked up to be. Maybe he lied to us the whole time. Maybe he was the biggest con man that ever walked the face of the earth. Or maybe, dude, he was just mentally unstable. Maybe he actually thought all that, but... all the wires weren't working, and he was a lunatic. But then the third day came. And then the third day came. And on that third day, when his followers, who had all sorts of doubts about who he was and whether he was true and whether he could be trusted, they're like, we don't know, but we're just going to go, man, we're going to go to his tomb, and we're going to try and honor him and try to bless and bring some flour, da-da, and they got to the tomb, and the tomb was empty, gone. He was missing. And within a few short hours, he started appearing to all sorts of people, literally in the flesh. And what that exclaimed in that moment was, he wasn't a liar, he wasn't a lunatic. You know who he actually was? He was the king. What it explained in that moment was, the king has come. Exclamation to point by his Resurrection. And what we've been studying in the book of Revelation is this reality that, you know what? The king is coming again. The king is coming again. Revelation, we're going to read it later on in a couple of months, and you can flip ahead to that slide, says these things about that coming day, right? Um, On his robe, this is describing, at the end of the story, right, Jesus is finally making his final entrance into this reality once again. And it says, on his robe and on his thigh, he is a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords, the king is coming again. Again. The story begins with God creating. The story ends with God recreating. The story began with it being very good. But listen, and I know a lot of us sometimes think this. A lot of us, we always want to go back. Have you ever heard that? We start to say this more probably. I mean, I don't say it yet, but maybe in a few years yet. We say these words. Man... I just want to go back to the good old days. (laughs) Everybody a little bit older than me is laughing. I just want to go back to the good old days. We say those as Christians. What we say as Christians someday is, I just want to go back there. Have you ever thought that? Don't don't shake your head because I don't want you to think I'm judging you. I don't want to go back there. Do you know why I don't want to go back there? Because there was the opportunity for sin there. There was the opportunity for sin there. I don't want to go back to where it was very good. I want to go to where it is totally good. The story begins with God creating. It ends with God recreating. The story in the beginning was very good, but the story that we're heading to, man, it is totally good. No opportunity for sin. Nothing deceitful. Totally good. And interestingly... In here, and you can pop the Genesis slide. In the beginning of the story, there's a tree of life. Uh, Genesis 2.9 says this, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the middle of the garden. And over here at the end of the story, do you know what we see again? The tree of life life. Revelation chapter 22 verses 1 through 2 talks about the angel showed me the river, the water of life, brightest crystal flowing through the middle of the street of the city, on either side of the river, the tree of life. And you and I, in this moment, in this space, we live between the two trees. We live between the true trees. We live in a world that is this, longing for that. We live there because we have at different times in our life says, nope, nope, nope. You and I live in the space and the reality between two trees, but the only way to get from this tree over to that tree is through another tree interesting, Peter, a guy who was at the crucifixion of Jesus, later on when he writes letters to churches that we have copies of, what he says, and when he describes where Jesus was crucified on the cross, he refers to that cross as a tree, as a tree. Between these two trees, the only way to get from that tree to that tree is from another tree, and that's the cross, and that's the cross. And that's why there's Easter. That's why there's Easter. Because we have all sinned, and when we sin, the reality is that something has to pay. And Jesus says, I'll pay. Interestingly, one of the prophecies about Jesus will that he will bear all of our iniquities, just like the scapegoat. Just like the scapegoat. And the question for you and me this morning as I invite the worship team back up here is the question that's reverberated throughout this. Do you trust God? Do you trust God? Because if you're trying to get here from any other way but through here, what the Bible says is it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Do we trust God? The reality is this morning, as I'm pulling this away so we can see Amy and the rest of these folks and don't fall off the side of the stage, because that would be really embarrassing and horrible. Here, Ray, grab that end, if you don't mind. Thanks, bro. The reality this morning is that there are many, that's great, bro, many of us have trusted God, right? Many of us have trusted God. If you haven't trusted God, you're trusting something this morning. You're trusting something to be the truth trusting something to get you where you want to go. But the question I would just ask you this morning is this. If the tomb was actually empty, if a guy actually in history, there was a supernatural moment where the supernatural invaded the natural and this thing happened that doesn't happen where somebody came back to life, if that's actually true, that, man, shouldn't we pay attention to a guy that came back from the dead? A lot of us have put our trust in Jesus, and this morning we have an opportunity to affirm that. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper, communion, and, and this is for people that have put their faith in Jesus, this is to remember it. And this morning what I just want us to remember is that, man, all of us have deserved to be punished for those moments when we thought we've known better than God. All of us have been separated from God, and we deserve punishment for what we've done in that moment because God is holy and just, and we turned our back on Him. And when we turn our back on God, somebody has to pay. But the beauty of Easter and the beauty of what we're remembering now is that, guess what? You don't have to pay because Jesus was the substitute and the scapegoat for me and for you. And all of our sins, like those goats in the Old Testament, were put on Jesus. One was put on Jesus like that goat that was killed in our place instead of us for sin. And then symbolically, they've also been put on Jesus. And you know what? They have been removed away from us if we've responded in faith to what Jesus has done in the cross. And so there is no more guilt. There is no more shame. There is no more condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's forgiveness. There's restoration. There's white as snow. And so this morning what I'm going to invite you to do is if you've believed in Jesus, to take a few moments at your seat and just think about what he's done for you and what he's done for us. An innocent thing that's done no wrong, that stood in our place, that was punished for us so we wouldn't have to be. And then when you're ready, and as you're ready, I'll invite you to come forward, and there are elders, you can come forward now, and there'll be elders holding the trays, and in the trays, there's some cup with some juice and some bread that symbolically represents the body of Christ. The bread, which represents the body of Christ, which was broken for us, and the, the juice, which represents his blood, which was shed for us. And we all came to Jesus at different times. We didn't all come to Jesus at the same time. And so in your own time, when you're ready, I'll invite you to come forward and then take the elements back to your seats. And when you get back to your seats, when you're ready and as you're ready, you may take them there in your seat by yourself. I won't be coming back to distribute them. Easter is not a standalone thing. Easter is a reality because, man, there is an amazing world and hope. But we've stepped away from that for sin. And when we sin, something has to pay. And Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you for your commitment to us not to ever abandon us. You didn't have to take a move towards us, but you did. Father, you sent the Son who willingly came to where we were to come dwell with us, to come be with us, because that was the way you wanted to rescue us. And in love, and to remove our shame, and to remove our guilt, and to remove our punishment, he was punished for us. And Father, that gives us incredible hope that our sins can be forgiven and we can be restored, and that one day we'll see you again. And I pray we'll be people who in the space between the two trees will live well in your kingdom, Father, and reflect your kingdom and show the values of your kingdom and the truth of the gospel. We want to continue to honor the King well in our time, Father, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And will the Spirit enable us to do that now?